Open your Bibles tonight, Revelation chapter 2. As we continue our study through the book of Revelation, uh, we've been talking most recently about the, the seven churches of Revelation. And just to review real quickly, we've talked about the church at Ephesus. They were the busy church, doing lots of good things, but they had lost their real love for the Savior, their first love. We talked last Sunday night about the Smyrna, that's the suffering church. They were persecuted, yet faithful. And tonight we're going to talk about two other churches, the next one being the church at Pergamum. And they are known as the Compromising Church. This church was located in, this, in a unique place. In fact, Jesus refers to the location of this church. It might catch, catch you off guard when you begin reading where this church was located. So let's go to Revelation chapter 2. We'll just read the scripture first. Revelation chapter 2, beginning uh, in verse 12. To the angel of the church at Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught uh, Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not to the church, but to the churches. Not just to this church, but all churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let me tell you a little bit about Pergamum. The city of Pergamon. The city was the center for three things. And I've got a place there on your notes. Uh, First of all, it was a religious center. It was known for its pagan temples. It was known for its shrines to various gods and pagan deities. It was also known as a place, uh, kind of the, the, the heartbeat of emperor worship. It was the center of emperor worship. They were the first city to erect a temple to Caesar Uh, It was the center for at least six major cults. It was a very dark and wicked city. It was known as the temple keepers of Asia because of the many, many temples that were there. Pagan temples, idolatrous temples. So it was a religious center. It secondly was a medical center. Uh, There in Pergamon, it was the, the... chief god of Pergamon, and I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, and those of you in the medical field, somebody can correct me or help me with this. The chief god was Asclepius. Is anybody, is that close at all? Anybody familiar with that term, Asclepius? Then I'm saying it correctly because you don't know any different. (laughs) All right. The temple in, one of the temples in Pergamon was the temple of Asclepius, who was considered the god of healing. Now the reason I ask if there were any medical people here who who would know the name of that is because these temples were kind of like ancient hospitals. That particular temple was the temple where you went to worship that god and to seek healing, and people came from all over the world seeking healing from this little g god. 
Now, the symbol, this is what's interesting. The, the emblem of Asclepius, the god of healing, is a coiled snake on a staff. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, that's the, that's the symbol for the medical field, isn't it? For those, uh, those uh, in the medical profession. So, in this city of Pergamon, there, were, there was all of these religious temples little r religious temples these these are not temples to god but temples to little g gods and one of them was asclepius and then thirdly pergamon was also a cultural center Uh, it was a place that had an enormous library that had over two hundred thousand rolls of parchments or what we would call today two hundred thousand books most of the academicians probably scoffed and and laughed at the christian beliefs taught by this church in pergamon Here's the reason I tell you about those three things. I want you to understand that Pergamon was probably not an easy place to be a Christian. Have you ever thought, you don't have to answer this out loud, but, but have you ever thought, you know, well, I tell you what, where, where I work, it's not easy to be a Christian. Well, I tell you, you know, where I live, it's not easy. The neighborhood I live in or the people I know, it's not easy to be a Christian. Where did Jesus say this church was? It, besides Pergamon, how did he describe where this church was? Yeah. It's the only place in the Bible I know of that, that's described quite like this. He says, I know where you live, verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, there's a couple of ways to interpret that. We're not exactly sure which it is, but uh, there's two, a couple of ways to interpret Number one, it could be, uh, a reference to the fact that emperor worship was there, that that was the headquarters, if you will, for emperor worship. Since it was the place the first temple of, of Caesar was built, and, and that's where Caesar was worshipped as, as God, it may be that Jesus was saying, that's where Satan has his throne. That might be a reference to that. Or it may be something else entirely. It might be saying, this Satan is, is not like God. He can't be everywhere at all times. Uh, he, he doesn't have that, that capability. He has to be in one place. So, so it may be that, that he was saying, this is where Satan has taken up residence. Pergamon is the place where he has set up his headquarters to attack the human race. Our Lord's commendation was this though, uh, regardless of where you're living, you're living where Satan has his throne, yet, look at this, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Our Lord's commendation was this, yet you remain true to my name. Can I ask you a question? What kind of a price are you willing to pay to remain true to the name of Jesus? Of course, that's not something I want you to answer verbally, but... It might be something some of you are wrestling with right now, you know, because there's a price to be paid for being faithful. There's a price to be paid for following Jesus sometimes. And in this particular church, he said, listen, I want to commend you for something. You have remained faithful, even though you live in a place where it's very hard to be a Christian, where Satan has his throne, whatever that means. It's very hard to be a Christian there, that's obvious. And even though you live in this place where it's very hard to be a Christian, and even though Antipas was executed there, uh, you have remained faithful to me. You say, well, who was Antipas? Antipas was the first martyr in Asia. 
Not the first martyr of all, but the first martyr in Asia. I'll tell you the story of how Antipas died. Antipas was slow roasted inside a hollow brass idol. They put him inside this idol where he couldn't get out. They built a fire under it. And slowly the idol heated up. And literally roasted him. Burned him alive. And Jesus said, You remain faithful to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Even in those days when You saw something horrific. Even in the days when there was a man that you knew by name. And you saw him die for his faith. You still remained, even then, you still remained faithful. But then there's a condemnation, which kind of fascinates me. We could put the period right there and say, amazing church, couldn't we? Living in a hard place. Living in a place where it's really hard to be a Christian. Where Satan has his home. Living in the midst of hell's headquarters. And yet they're still living for God, it would appear. They're faithful. Even when Antipas was executed. But then, there's this condemnation beginning in verse 14. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Which catches my attention because I'm thinking, if you've been faithful where Satan has his throne, what in the world did they do? He says, I have a few things against you. And here's what it is. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know you've been faithful, but when I look into your church, I see that there have, you have people in your church who have been seduced by false teaching. And it was pretty amazing when you start digging into what they were teaching. But before we do that, I want you to notice something. That so far, each of the churches so far, Satan has used a different strategy. Catch that. Ephesus, they lost their first love through busyness. Smyrna, it was an attack, a direct attack by persecution. Pergamon, Satan slithered in the back door and led people astray through deceptive teaching. And may I say to you, Satan knows what to work on you too. His strategy is different from person to person and even from church to church. But, His goal is to deceive and to defeat and to destroy. But, there is one greater than Him, isn't there? So, there's two serious problems here that I want to quickly look at in Pergamon. uh, And they are somewhat related, so I won't cover them in detail. He says, first of all, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, on the notes there in the side column, you might want to write down this reference. You can track it down and read about it later. I don't have time to deal with it. Numbers chapters 22 through 25. Numbers chapters 22 through 25 will give you the, the Old Testament background of what Jesus was talking about here when he talks about uh, the, 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 people, the teaching of Balaam. But basically, I'll summarize it for you. The king of the Midianites hired Balaam to curse his enemy, Israel. 
the, the king of the Midianites thought it would be good to, to bring Balaam in. He was this, this prophet guy and, and bring him in to curse the people of Israel because there were too many of them to fight. But instead of a curse, God turned the curses into blessings. Every time Balaam stood up, it, it, it came out a blessing from God. Uh, and Balaam then showed the king of Midian how he could basically get what he wanted. He showed him, here's how you can bring them down. So Balaam suggested that the idol-worshipping Moabite women could be used to seduce the Israelite men to turn from God. Basically, he said this. This is shorter translation. Listen, listen, listen. You don't need me to curse these people. You just need to get the, the Moabite women to start meeting these Israelite men. You don't, then it'll take care of itself. Look in Numbers 25. Go to Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them. Now notice that that's, that's bad enough. But look what they, these Moabite women did. Verse 2. Who invited them to the sacrifices to their little g gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, the people being the Israelites. They ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Now, when Jesus is addressing the church in Revelation, He's saying, listen, you've been faithful, but there are some in the church there are some in the church who are committing the sin of Balaam. Some in the church have crept into the church and, and they are tolerating what they should not tolerate. The toleration of evil. There were some in the church who were apparently saying, there's nothing wrong with just you know sacrificing, putting a little incense on the altar at the temple's especially if you have to go to the temple of Caesar and worship there. There's nothing wrong. We, we ought to compromise a little bit here and we ought to put a little sacrifice or a little uh, incense on the altar and sacrifice it to Caesar and so we can get along with the Romans. There's nothing wrong with that. There was a group in the church basically teaching this, that we need to compromise with, with our society, compromise with those around us. There's nothing wrong with, with this compromise. We can still serve God. We can still serve the Lord, but there's nothing wrong with this just compromise to get along. Let me tell you something. Whenever we compromise the Word of God, whenever we decide that, watch this, whenever we decide that we can compromise the Word of God, we're not living as the church anymore. When we compromise the Word of God, we're compromising the work He wants us to do. And so when we look at this text, look at it again, verse 14. Uh, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, and here's part of the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. There's nothing wrong with this. Let's compromise. And likewise, you also hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans and, and similar type of problem of, of compromising, uh, infiltrating the church. And so he then gives us this counsel in verse 16. 
He says, what's that first word in verse 16? Say it louder. Repent, therefore, unless you're willing to repent of your sins and return to obedience to the word. He says you'll be judged. Look, look how he describes it. Repent, therefore, otherwise, if you don't repent, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Does that word sound familiar to you, the sword of my mouth? Does that sound like something in the New Testament you're familiar with? New Testament, the book of Hebrews. Hint, hint. Hebrews chapter chapter 4. Hint, hint. Hebrews 4.12. Tell us about it, Keith. Yeah. Absolutely. So he says, unless you repent, I will come and judge you with the sword of my mouth. Ladies and gentlemen, can I say to you, you do not want to be judged by that sword. You do not want to be judged by that. The word, watch, this is what amazes me. The Word of God is a guide to guide us back to Him. The Word of God is always a guide to bring us back to, to the Lord. It's, it's a guide to help us see how to return to the Lord. But if we ignore that guide, that same guide becomes our judge. The Word becomes our judge. So this is the church at per, uh, per, uh, Pergamum. Uh, this is the church that compromised their beliefs in order to get along with the society around them and compromised in the area of food sacrifice to idols and committing sexual immorality. And Jesus said, I know. I know where you live and I know what you've experienced. And then we come to the church at Thyatira, which was somewhat similar. And, and uh, beginning in verse 18, he, he addresses them this way. He says, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 17, didn't I? Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone and a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. I'm sorry, I was trying to watch my time and I skipped that. Uh, what, what does this mean? I, I will give him a white stone and I'll give him hidden manna. Here's the challenge. In the Old Testament, what was manna? Somebody tell me real quickly. What was manna in the Old Testament? It was bread. And it was provided for their nourishment. It was physical nourishment needed for their journey as they traveled towards the promised land. God was giving them what they needed to stay strong physically. And He says, to those who overcome, I will give spiritual manna, hidden manna. I will give you what you need to stay spiritually strong in your journey with Me. There will be days where you will face problems and you'll face opposition. And there will be days and days of Antipas where some may even die for their faith. But if you stay faithful to me, I will give you the hidden manna that you need to stay strong in the journey. I will give you the hidden manna that you need to be faithful if you will let me. David Jeremiah tells the story of a young man who was working at a warehouse, and, and he, David Jeremiah was a young man as well. He was working at the same warehouse, and he said it was an awful place to work. A lot of profane people, a lot of immoral people, a lot of 
of, of, of cursing and, and obscene things going on and being suggested and so forth. And David Jeremiah said, I noticed this one young man at break on his first day at work, at break, uh, at lunch break, he was sitting over in the corner and he had his lunch. He said, but he had something else too. He said he had out his, his, his Bible. He said he was reading his Bible in the midst of that perverse setting. He was getting his manna that he needed to stay faithful. Folks, you've got that same manna available to you. Same manna to stay faithful. And then he says, and if you stay faithful, I'll give you something else. What else did he say I'll give you? White stone. And there's something about this white stone. What? I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. Known only to him who receives it. Uh, I don't want to run out of time, so I'm going to hit this real quickly. But basically, here's what you need to understand. In, in the ancient courts, white and black stones were, were given uh, to the jury to, dis, to uh, express their verdict. They would throw the stone into the urn. A black stone meant guilty. A white stone meant not guilty. Jesus said, if you persevere to the end, if you're faithful to the end, I've got a white stone that I'm going to cast for you. I'm going to declare you not guilty. And I'm going to put your name on it. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know what all that means, except this. It means he wants to, he's going, he plans to recognize our faithfulness. He said, I'm going to give you a white stone with your name on it. And the name, another name known only to you. Uh, a personal, private name. Uh, you see, let, let me tell you something, you're not just a number to God. Don't compromise. Don't be, don't, don't be tempted to compromise, but be committed to the one who's committed to you. That's the church at Pergamum. Let's go to the church at Thyatira, uh, the pagan church. Pergamum is the compromising church. The church at Thyatira is the pagan church. It says in verse 18, To the angel of the church at Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith and your service and perseverance, and that you, you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Very similar to what we read Church of Pergamum. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have. Say those three words with me. Until I come. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, 
I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give uh, give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, this is the longest message that Christ had for the seven churches. It was the church at Thyatira, the longest message that he gave. If you're a student of the Bible, you've heard of this city before. Does anybody recognize the city Thyatira somewhere else in the New Testament? It's in the book of Acts. That helps you at all. Thyatira was the home of the lady we read about in Acts chapter 16. Her name was Lydia. Paul was preaching in that city. They had just arrived there and they were preaching at the banks of a river. Uh, and Lydia was there. And the Bible says that, uh, that the Lord opened her heart. That she was a seller of purple cloth, I believe it was, from Thyatira. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel. And Lydia was the first convert in Europe. First convert in Europe from this city, the city of Thyatira. The city also boasted of another special temple. Like, like lots of cities in that day, they had a temple to Apollo, the sun god. That's why the Lord began His message as He did in verse 18. Look how, he's described, how Jesus is described in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the, what's that next phrase? The Son of God. It's the, it's the only place in the Revelation where this title is used. The Son of God. And He's described for us. He said His eyes are like blazing fire. Is that what it says? I'm trying to remember. Eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Blazing fire, penetrating insight. Speaking of the judgment that was to come in this city where the sun God was worshipped, he said, let me tell you about the Son of God. The Son of God, with eyes like blazing fire, is going to judge you. But he starts out with a commendation, and there's six things that they did well. Church, don't miss this. Six things they did well. He said, uh, he said, uh, I know your deeds, that's number one, verse 19. Your love, number two, and faith, number three. Your service, number four. Perseverance, number five. And that you are now doing more than you did at first, number six. Again, we could stop right there and say, that's an amazing church. That's an amazing church that's, that's doing good deeds. They have great love, they have great faith, they have great service. And they're persevering and they're doing more than they did at first. And yet there's still a condemnation for this church. When he says in verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Jezebel is a name you're familiar with. Perhaps it's a name from the Old Testament. Uh, it was a person in the Old Testament, a woman who had... had uh, 1 Kings 16 is one of the places you read about her. She, she had... Um, she had, how would you describe Jezebel? I'm trying to be careful in my wording. Uh, Jezebel was someone who was characterized, let me say it this way, she was characterized by immorality and idolatry. Jezebel basically was a harlot 
and a witch. Uh, you can read about her in 1 Kings 16 and 2 Kings 9. And Jesus said, when I look at the church, there is a prophetess in your church. I don't think her name literally was Jezebel. I think Jesus was saying she's like Jezebel. She has a Jezebel-like quality about her. And this lady in your church is preaching and speaking and teaching. And it says, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, we're about to run out of time, so I'm going to go quickly. But, but, I, but rather than just condemning, I want you to notice what Jesus did in verse 21. The incredible grace of God. He said... Even though she's doing this, verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality. Isn't that amazing? Listen, if I was God and there was a Jezebel type person, a prophetess preaching in the church, if, if, if I were God and she was doing that, it would take me about two seconds to wipe her out. And I would be justified if I were God in my mind in doing that. But God, our gracious Heavenly Father says, I see what she's doing, and I have given her time to repent. Aren't you glad God is gracious? Aren't you glad God gives you time to repent? But there is a limit to the time He gives. There is a limit to His patience. Look what He says in verse 22. Uh, he, well, at the end of verse 21, uh, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. She is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they, there's that word again, repent of her ways. Uh, because we're about to run out of time, let's skip down to verse 24 and look at the counsel that he gives. Well, verse 23 says, I'll strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Something you might want to think about, I am he who searches hearts and minds. You can fool others, but you can't fool him. I am he who searches hearts and minds, and will repay each of you according to your deeds. Verse 24, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Apparently she was saying, listen, these are the deep secrets of the faith. You need to learn these things. To, and, and, and he says, these are Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you. He says, only hold on to what I have, what you have, until I come. Hold on. Until I come. I think I put this on your notes. This is the first mention in the book of Revelation. Of the Lord returning for his church. We need to make sure that we do not lose sight of the fact. That Jesus is coming back. We will be studying all about that. But the certainty of his return. And the uncertainty of when it, should have, when it will happen. Ought to motivate us to live a clean life. And we close now with the challenge. Verse 26 especially emphasizes something that you might want to mark in your Bible. To him who overcomes and does my will, look at this phrase, to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. He who overcomes and does my will to the end. He's talking about hanging tough and finishing strong. 
when perhaps others around you are not. My closing challenge to you is this. So many Christians start out well. They do so much for God for a while. And then they are shot down in flames. So often, I hear reports over and over and over. People from our church, people in other churches where started out strong, but didn't, they weren't faithful to the end. If you hear nothing else tonight, please hear this. God loves you, and God is cheering for you, and God will help you, and God will enable you to endure and be faithful. But you have to decide that you want that. You have to decide that you're going to do that. You have to decide that you're going to be faithful to the end. And by God's grace, I hope and pray you will be.